1: from the Derek Duval Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall!
2: Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Hi. Thank you, everyone. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duval Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duval Show Vacation Edition. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before we get into this episode... I want to say thanks again to my last guest, Mike DiVicino. His story was incredibly moving and encapsulates everything that I created the Derek Duvall show to showcase. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the episode, I strongly advise you to seek it out after you've done listening to this one. So welcome to episode 82, and we have a very special episode for you today. We have on the show 9-11 survivor Bill Hem is here with us. He will discuss how a simple training class at the South Tower of the World Trade Center made him a participant in one of the most horrific moments in world history. So let's just go ahead and get him out here to tell that tale. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and join me in welcoming to the show, direct from Tulsa, Oklahoma, 9-11 survivor, Bill Hem. <laughs> Bill, hello, welcome to the Dirk Duval show. How is the weather out by you today?
3: It is nice. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. The weather is nice. I'm ready for some fall, though. I'm ready for some crisp air out there.
2: Nice. I start my interviews off the same way with every interview, and then it's, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 world?
3: You know, as a pastor, it was really, really strange. Um, I Before COVID, I would fantasize about being by myself because i mean as a pastor i'm being pulled in seven different directions and i would i would think what would it be like just to do just to be home and do nothing that fantasy lasted about two weeks into the pandemic and then i was done with that fantasy because i really wanted to be around people and the whole pandemic was just it tossed me off my game you know the church is we're we're running about 60 percent of what uh we were like pre-covid and so I don't know. It's a little demoralizing. Um, but navigating all of it was was tough uh being being a pastor.
2: So every journey has a beginning and full disclosure, you are the brother of our friend of our show, Katie Kinder. Correct? Yes. Yeah, that's correct. All that's, right.
3: Katie, let's be real clear. Katie's my sister. I'm not exactly oh. her brother. Katie's my sister, right?
2: So <laughs> So where were you born and what was it like to grow up there? So I was born in Fayetteville,
3: Arkansas, but I only lived there for a couple months. Uh, my parents were graduating uh, from Arkansas, which is where I eventually went to school. But they were going to University of Arkansas, and so they had me. And um, I have lived in Tulsa, in the Tulsa area, since I was three uh, years old. So I loved growing up in Broken Arrow. I graduated from Broken Arrow High School. I loved every bit of it. Um, and then we went. Of course, I went to, to to college at U of A. But but growing up here was great. I loved it. I was the only Arkansas kid, though, in the, in, you know, when growing up around my friends, I had to contend with all the OSU, OU stuff. So when I got to Arkansas, it was glorious. The whole state was behind
2: me. <laughs> uh, was she a good sibling? Oh, Katie? Yeah. Nah,
3: she used to beat me up all the time. <laughs> now you're a good sibling. No, I'm just teasing. She was great. She was wonderful. Um, And I've, I actually have the, f- um the four siblings. Uh, So they, we all, we all get along great, and uh, yeah, it was a great, wonderful childhood.
2: Awesome. Where did you go to college again? University of Arkansas. Oh, right on. Are you a big Razorbacks fan.
3: Absolutely, a hundred percent. It feels it feels good to be a hog right now. We got we got a lot
2: of things going. Nice. So we're gonna take it back about twenty years. Uh, what led you to working at the World Trade Center in New York City?
3: So I graduated in May of 2001 with uh, my math degree from U of A, and I the world of finance intrigued me. And so the last year of college, I spent interning at uh, at Merrill Lynch. But there was a spot that that opened up at Morgan Stanley uh, in Fayetteville, and so I approached them, and they said, "Sure, come on." And um, uh, you know, for the first three months, uh, we were doing. Uh, you know, I. Had trained for my series seven and so they basically just gave me a book and said you know let us know if you have any questions so for like for three months i just trained for my series seven and uh, when i got that and then that's when i was sent to new york
2: so what does an average day working at the world trade center look like is it you know was it like walking to and from it what's it, how long does it take to get up in the tower to your office
3: so i mean i'm going mean, to answer kind of in a weird way because i didn't really work in the at the world trade center i was just there for training. And when I got there, I got there on September 9th, you know, in New York. first time I'd ever been in New York City or anything like that. Um, and I had no idea where the training was supposed to be. Like, I I, I told my parents and my wife, I was brand new married, um, and they were all like, where's your training supposed to be? I was like, I don't know, somewhere. Where would they tell us to go, I guess? I mean, I had, I knew where my hotel was, and that was about it. So the first, and I don't know, I mean, I maybe jumping ahead, but the first day that I was there at the World Trade Center was Monday, You know, of course September 11th was Tuesday, but that Monday, um, it was crazy chaotic um, all over the place. They, uh, I got lost from my group a couple different times, but, um, but they, had a, they had a section where we had to get a badge um, and an ID to go up to the floor that we were at. I was in the South Tower in the, in the 63rd floor. And so you couldn't just ride an elevator up to the 63rd floor and get out. You had to have an ID to, to do that. And so they had set up, um, again, a little area because there's about 300 students uh, that or the trainees that were there from from all over the country. And uh, they had set up an area to get our IDs. Well, the, the people behind the counter, the, the World Trade Center workers, they had handwritten, you know, where we were supposed to be, at, like based on our last name. And so they had an A through G, you know, and I through M and then N through Z. Well, they forgot the H, Mm. right? And so I'm sitting there looking and going, well, I I don't know. I don't know where I'm supposed to be. And I I heard several people holler where the H is supposed to go. And uh, the ladies kept pointing over to the A through G line. I was like, whatever. So I get over to the A through G line and I'm waiting to get up there. And several people kept asking where the H's go. Well, the security personnel back there were getting mad and they were making fun of us. Um, And they were making little snide comments. Like I thought this was supposed to be Morgan Stanley. I thought you're supposed to be smart to work here. And and I had kind of had it. So I got up to the the front line. I heard somebody say something. I go, you do realize you missed the H, right? I mean, there is no H. And she looked over and she goes, oh, well, well, you knew what we meant. Like, no, we didn't know what you meant. Apparently, knowledge of the alphabet is not required to work at the World Trade Center. And I feel really bad that I popped off like that because those were the people that were saving us the very next day. I mean, Mm. I'm way getting ahead of myself, but I remember being really rude um, to one of those people, and they put themselves in harm's way the very next day to save me and a whole lot of other people.
2: What do you remember the morning of prior to the attack?
3: So… I mean, I mean, I'm going to back up when I when I got there on that Monday, they had put out a huge breakfast spread for us, you know, all 300 of the trainees and they had muffins and cakes and donuts and juices flowing. And it, it was wonderful. I thought, man, this is red carpet, you know, like treatment here. But so I remember thinking that I was going to get that every single day. Well, apparently that was just a first day thing. And so when I, I mean, I had the chance to kind of eat breakfast, so I go, well, they've got that spread up there, so I'm probably going to eat up there. And so when I got there on, um, on September 11th, on that Tuesday, I rode the elevator up with my badge and whatnot, uh, and I got there and there was no, you know, there was no breakfast. And I went to the, I went to the, one of the trainers and I'm like, where's our, where's our spread? And they go, oh, that was just a first day thing. You got you're on your own for breakfast for the rest of the the three weeks. We're supposed to be there for three weeks, um, and so I was already hungry to to start the day, which leads mm-hmm. into the next part of the, you know, just kind of yeah. where I went.
2: So, at what point do you realize that a plane has hit Tower One? So before that,
3: um, I it's about it's about eight thirty in the morning. Of course, it's New York time, right? So it's about eight thirty in the morning, and there we had we had a. Our first presentation, but then we had a break at, at 8 30. And I thought, man, I'm going down uh to get some breakfast. And so I knew there was there was an elevator hub about the 45th floor. And so I went down there and I knew there was a little cafeteria there. So I'm I'm down there and I'm grabbing my my ding-dongs and my chocolate milk and I'm paying at the register, and everyone runs to the windows because they they heard something. Well, the, the first plane had come into the North tower next to us. I didn't hear or feel anything, but everyone kind of went to the windows. So then I moseyed over to the windows and I was like, what are we doing? And I asked some random person next to me and they go, did you feel that? And I'm like, I, I didn't feel anything. And I looked down and of course I'm up 45 flights of, of stairs. Right. So I looked down and I see fire on the ground, but it looked really little. And, and I remember, seeing whole sheets of paper flying all over the place like outside like a ticker tape parade but it was whole sheets of paper and i thought that was strange but i still didn't think anything was horribly wrong and i'm like all right so i went up to the to the elevator to to ride it back to the 63rd floor and already there was security personnel stationed around the elevators that were saying no it's we're evacuating leave go and so they started directing us to the stairs so I start walking down 45 flights of stairs, and it was real casual. Like it was like, we were laughing and joking. I had my my chocolate milk and ding-dongs I was carrying down with me. There was a couple of girls from my class that we, I was walking with, and we were laughing and joking and having a big time. And, um, and then I got to about the 25th floor, uh, and there was an announcement that came over the PA system. And, and everybody was, that was walking the elevator just kind of stopped and 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 listened, and the PA announcer says, Tower 1 is on fire, but Tower 2 is secure, so please go back to work. Like, go back to your desk. Go back to where you were coming from. And I thought, well, all right, and I started to kind of exit the stairwell, but there was a whole lot of New York people that you know worked there that kept yelling and screaming for us to keep moving. They're like, no, keep going. Keep going. We're getting out of here. And I'm like. All right, whatever. And I already started working on my excuse as to why I wasn't gonna be in class because I was just gonna follow the crowd and the security people told me to leave. And like, I thought I was gonna be in trouble but I didn't go back up and start class. Um, And so we start, we continue to walk down our stairwell and I get to about the ninth or 10th floor. And that's when the plane came into our building and it shook violently. And it was, and I knew something was not right at all. And the, the jovial nature in our stairwell that kind of ended and we all started just running. No idea why we were running, by the way, because we didn't know what was happening. We just the people ahead of me were running, so I'm I'm gonna run as well. And so we run and run, and we get to about the third floor, and that's where the stairwell ends because it all connects at the bottom. And I opened the door thinking that I was gonna enter into chaos, like I had seen the last two mornings there, and there wasn't. It was orderly. And there was a there was a security personnel about every 10 yards telling us where to go and directing us, you know, how to get out of the building. The same personnel, by the way, that I was popping off to the day before Mm -hmm. um, they were they were saying, hey, you know, we found the we found our exit route. So move this way. And I I mean, we're 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 walking past doors we could have gotten out of. I mean, I see it. They were right there. And and so I. I, I don't know what's happening, but I know that something's wrong. So I veer off from the group slightly and I'm leaving. I'm, I'm going out one of these doors, a big old security guard. He stood right in front of me and he goes, sir, we're moving this way. And I go, well, I'm going out that door. And he goes, listen, I mean, he gets all gruff and he goes, listen, we got debris falling here, here, here and here. We found the only way out now move it. And I go, okay, sounds, sounds <laughs> good. Um, and so I, I fell in line and, and we eventually got to a place where, we were we were kind of hugging the the building. We were we were outside, but we were still really really close to the building. An evacuation guy looking up, saying, "Okay, when I say go, run across the street and keep running. Do not look back." He was timing the debris that was falling, so he was telling us when to go. And so when he said go, we just started hauling. Uh, and I got two or three blocks before I had to turn around and, and look at it, and I saw the big old hole that everyone now in the world has seen but me but us Mm -hmm. in the in the in the towers but you guys are getting a much better view than i was i was on the ground looking so far up you guys were looking at you know scenes from helicopters and stuff it didn't i was like why it doesn't look good but i don't know how they're gonna get that fire out that's what i was thinking and then you know i started to navigate my way back to my hotel which was in manhattan i had a really sheltered view of of what was going on I just kind of I just kind of kept my eyes in front of me I didn't I didn't see any of the awfulness now my roommate he saw some horrible stuff and you know they pair you with roommates I didn't know this guy um but he saw some really awful things we can talk about his story in a second but yeah I didn't see anything awful in that way in fact I didn't even hear that the towers had come down I was trying to navigate back to to 38th and Lexington. And I don't know my way around New York. So I kept stopping people going, hey, where's 38th and Lexington? And sometimes these New Yorkers, they would start giving me subway designations. And I was like, hey, because <laughs> subways aren't working. There's no one's, you know, They, go, I go just point in the general direction. And so finally I found Lexington and got to, got to 38th. And by the time I got up to my hotel room and turned the TV on, both buildings were down, gone.
2: So you missed all the smoke, the cloud, all that stuff. All oh, it. Yeah. Wow.
3: Now again, I mean, I got a twenty-floor jump start on the rest of my class, and so because I went down to get you know the ding dongs and chocolate milk, so they had some, they had some much more harrowing stories because they were in there for twenty more floors. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a bad deal. It was a really bad deal.
2: Okay, Devonish, and we're gonna go ahead and take a small break right here, but we'll be right back with the conclusion of this amazing interview. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink, take some super nice, long, deep breaths—you know, Cluzo style.
1: Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad, air, in with the good.
2: Pay attention to two friends of the show, and we will be right back. I'm Agent Scott, and I'm Cam, the provocateur, and together we are the Spy Hearts podcast. Every Tuesday, we decode the best and the worst of spy cinema to decipher if they make the knock list. That's right. The knock list is the need to see official classics of the spy genre. The best of the best, so to speak. Nobody does it better. From Bourne to Bond and Powers to Palmer, you can bet we will cover it. So subscribe now and revel in the audio equivalent of a smooth martini. Just search for SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on all major podcast apps. And let's just hope you find us before we find you. Sergio, arriving.
0: Hello everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in operation enduring freedom, Navigating insurmountable odds and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold.
2: Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things?
1: Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off. You can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget Cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you.
0: Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education, part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hello there GigaWater Gang, I'm Keena, the host of the boozy and delightfully foul-mouthed comedy podcast, Historical AF. I'm a nerdy public historian that is joined by a special guest each week to deliver funny, weird, spooky, and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. Past topics have included the magical manhood of Russia's mad monk Rasputin, my hot take the aliens did not build the pyramids serial killers that both my parents happened to meet as children listen i know what you're thinking Keena. how do you even exist right now also who was it all right i'll tell you spoiler alert it was sean wayne gacy and mark allen smith anywho we can't forget the spooky i've covered topics ranging from the ghost of anne boleyn to the night marchers in hawaii don't look at them guys if you do you have to strip naked and you have to lay on the dirt dims the rules you can listen and subscribe to historical af wherever you get your podcasts you can also follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Historical AF Pod. And finally, you can check out the website for links to listen, sources, because citing is sexy, photos, and more at historicalafpodcast.com. Okay,
2: bye. Welcome back to episode 82 of the Derek Duvall Show Vacation Edition. Let's get right back to the conclusion of this episode with our interview with 9-11 Survivor Bill Hem. Let's give me your roommate's version of what happened. So uh, this guy again just met
3: him, you know, the night before, the two nights before. Nice dude. He had a, he was he was a couple years older than me. I mean, I was like twenty two, and he was a few years older than me. He was married and and had and had one one daughter, and she was she was little. Um, and so he had been kind of in the financial world longer than I have. Uh, his family was in it, you know, but uh, and he knew New York really well. So he. Um, instead of going down twenty floors to get you know the ding dongs and chocolate milk, he was on a he was on the phone, and this is back you know in two thousand one, right? So about half of us had phones and half of us didn't, uh, and I was one of the ones that didn't. But he had he had a phone, and he's standing there looking out, uh, and you've seen the pictures. It was a gorgeous day; it was beautiful. Um, he's looking up, at, you know, he's looking out in the water, seeing the Statue of Liberty. He's on the phone with his wife. And he just called and said, hey, we're at a break. I just wanted to, you know, I'm I'm up here at the World Trade Center. How awesome. I can see the Statue of Liberty. How wonderful is this? And he hears when uh, the first plane goes into to Tower One. Apparently, there were some windows that got knocked out of our building on that floor. Um, and so he would heard the commotion, and he tells his wife, hey, I got to go, hangs the phone up, turns around, to his window that he's looking at and sees a body go flying by i mean from 63 floors up and this wasn't somebody that jumped this was i mean this was just you know horrible things that just happened. and so he he turns to somebody next to him and he goes was that a body and he and the other guy goes yep it's time to go and he goes yep let's let's leave and so everybody starts from my class starts evacuating down but he had a different stairwell than did. he had a different experience i mean he was terrified the whole way down, he'd just seen a body go flying by. The When I got to the ninth or 10th floor, when the, when the plane came into ours, he was about the 30th floor, the 25th floor, the 30th floor. So the building violently rocked with him. He thought he wasn't going to get out alive. He thought he wasn't going to get to see his kid again. He had all those thoughts going on. I didn't have anything like that happening. It was a fire drill for me um, until I got all the way out. But he it was harrowing. And he got out um with minutes to spare on on the building coming down. I mean, he he tur- he got several blocks away turned around and it's coming down. It's awful. I mean, he had to go through counseling. He had to go, you know, I'm sitting there wanting to talk about it the whole day. And he's like, dude, enough. We can't we can't talk about this anymore. I was like, all right. And then two minutes later, we're talking about it again. No. He and he kept having to remind me, dude, you gotta you gotta give me some space here. I'm like, all <laughs> right, yeah, you're right. Sorry. I mean, I've seen many documentaries about this afterwards and whatnot. Um, the the mo- the one that was the most eerie for me, um, it was released about six months after the event uh, on in September. And it was the, you know, that it looks like kind of rough footage that you see of the first plane going in. Yeah. It's like the only footage we have. It was that camera crew. It was like a French, I don't know if you've seen it. it was a I French, have seen it. Yeah. So the eerie part for me was when, you know, they were the first ones on the scene. And they're filming inside, and you got all these executives and people that are dressed nicely whatever, and they're in this like half jog because they don't know if it's important or not, and they don't know if they're supposed to be running out of the building. And I – in my group, we embodied that. Like we didn't know if we were supposed to be running or not, and I remember watching that about six months afterwards going, oh, yeah, they captured the inside of that really well
2: because we didn't know what we were doing. The sound of that video when the the tower comes down on top of them, I think it's – that's, oh that was incredible. Poor. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And the and I think it's that same documentary. You hear loud bangs every now and then, and those are yeah. people. Yeah. Uh just horrific.
2: Yeah. After the after the World Trade Center collapses and you know everything's kind of come to the end of the attack. How long did it take you to get in touch with your family, tell them that you were alive? So I muddied the
3: waters a little bit on that because they didn't know what building I was going to be in, but I called a Monday night, you know, before Tuesday, I called a Monday night and I go, this is great. I'm in the world trade center. I can see the statue of Liberty. We're so far up. I don't even know. I mean, I'm just bragging about where I am. And so now they all know that I'm in this building. Um, And because I don't have a cell phone and the cell phone lines were jammed anyway, during that time, um, it took me, you know, a good, probably hour to navigate around to find my hotel. Um, And once I got to my hotel and learned that the towers were down, then I started trying to get in touch with my wife and my parents. My wife was babysitting. Um, She was, I mean, she was a couple years out of school and she was babysitting for a family. And the, I don't know if you know this, the only channel in the entire channel lineup that they didn't interrupt was the Disney channel. They like left that alone so kids could have some sort of outlet somewhere. Every other channel you remember was on the news. Um, so she didn't know what was happening. Um, and my mom had to f- navigate a way to get a hold of her because, you know, everybody's got landlines back then. Um, and so my mom had to tell her what's going on. By the time I got to my hotel, I was able to navigate around and try to call her and, and was able to speak with her. But it was a good, it's a good hour and a half after. Average over with, maybe more. I mean, I know my parents, they had enough time to gather at my grandparents' house with their closest friends watching this and knowing I was probably dead. I mean, my mom tells a horrible story about how she is, I mean, because she had already contacted the Morgan Stanley office in Fayetteville and they had kind of said, We haven't heard from him either. We haven't heard from anyone. And she said, Well, what floor would he have been on? It's like, Well, about the 60 something floor. And so she is next to the screen, next to the television screen, counting up the floors, trying to figure out what's going on. And that's when the tower comes down. And she basically, she goes, well, that doesn't matter now. He's dead. I don't care what floor he's on now. He's he's a, he's a goner. And so they had a horrible time. Meanwhile, I'm in la-la land trying to find my hotel bag, not understanding the urgency that I've got to call them. So as soon as I got back to the hotel, I did. But... If I could do a lot of things over, I would have stopped at a payphone to call them sooner than I than I did. Mm. Um, but you know, what are you gonna do? I didn't know it was that big a deal. I mean, I knew it was a big deal. I didn't know it was it was this large until I got back to my hotel.
2: Mm. So how long did it take you to like you know, obviously I'm sure you got some sort of residual memory of it or how long did it take you to recover from that event?
3: You know, it's it's really odd. I I mean I it's, it's interesting that I was a part of history and I was in the tower and that, you know, that and everyone that's of a certain age now remembers where they were when, you know, when they heard about the towers and they and and the towers were struck. Um, so it was interesting that I was a part of that history. Do I have any PTSD or have any horrible memories from it? I mean, not really. So I don't know that recovery is the is the right word. Interesting that I was a part of it. But again, I didn't go through the horribleness that my that my roommate went through, that my parents went through, that uh, you know, so it's it's and watching the documentaries gets me more emotional than anything, not because I was there but because so much pain on so many different people's faces and their stories. I mean, that touches me, but it would touch anyone, right? So, I don't know that I don't know that there was a time period where I needed to quote get over it or reconcile with the event.
2: Mm. What do you do on the anniversary of 9-11 every year? It's
3: it used to be where that was the time that I would give talks and speeches and stuff around around town. The little lunch groups, you know, the Kiwanis and the Lions Club and stuff like that. They would they'd reach out to me somehow and they'd be like, "Hey, you wanna you wanna give a talk around you know around September?" And it's interesting because you're you know you're I'm, I mean I've given this talk so many times about about my story and what I was doing. And everybody has that look of recognition. They're like, oh, I remember where I was and I remember exactly what you're talking about. What was fascinating was about, I don't know, about five years ago, um, I was asked to talk at a high school, it was a high school, actually. And so and I actually brought some footage. I mean, because I wanted to I wanted to let the kids know kind of where I was and what was what was happening. And the kids were super nice and they were very respectful and they were it was awesome. But it was a history lesson for them. They didn't live it. And, and more and as the years go by, more and more people do not have a memory of where they were because they weren't alive. I mean, my three girls, they weren't alive. So those those instances of me sharing stories like this are are starting to be uh, few and far between because you know, I don't know that we've moved on, but I'm getting less and less requests to to do this kind of thing. Um, and so that's what I do. And I every na- I don't do it every 9/11, but not um, every two or three times, I'll, I'll reach out to my old roommate over, over Facebook. And I'll just kind of say, Hey, you know, glad we made it, you know, that kind of thing. And we're Facebook friends. I mean, and he's got like five kids now. I mean, it's, it's great to see him and his family and everything, but, That's awesome. um, but we did have that shared experience uh, that we'll always have.
2: So what happens when you get back to Morgan Stanley? Is it kind of just everybody wants to pick your brain? What happened? What happened? What happened? Oh yeah.
3: Yeah. And not just Morgan Stanley, like everywhere. Right. Cause I got back to Arkansas and I was one of like three or four people in the state that were in the building. Right. Um, maybe it was a little bit more than that, but I mean, I, news outlets were all over the place. Most of the time on anniversaries, they would, they would contact me. But when I got back to Morgan Stanley, yeah, they, cause, cause most people that were in my office at Morgan Stanley had all taken the same training that I was going to be taking. Um, so they all knew exactly where I was. They knew the rooms I was in. They they've been in those towers. And so they've got some, shared understanding of kind of where I was and what I was doing at the time of the impact but um I didn't I didn't make it as a stockbroker that well I mean I made it like less than a year it was not it was not for me but um a couple times at the first couple anniversaries Morgan Stanley would invite me back for a little luncheon and we'd we'd just kind of sit around and talk um, and they were crazy supportive um, of me I mean I didn't you know, they were like, take as much time as you need to, you know, do whatever you need yeah. to. We'll cover all expenses. We'll cover what you need to do. Um, so the ridiculous thing was, again, I was 22 years old. But um, when I when I got back to the hotel and I'd contacted my parents and I contacted my wife, I was like, I need to contact my office um, and let them know what's going on. So I called my manager. His name is Jim Wood. He's such a great guy. Um, I, uh, so I contacted him and um, and he had me on speaker. And, like, the whole office was all gathered, like, in his tiny office listening to me, and and he was like, oh, we just want to make sure you're okay, and I'm like, yeah, they're, and I talked to him about a couple of things, yeah, they're trying to get together and have us all gather near Madison Square Garden at some point, I don't know if we're going to do that or not, and I was kind of sharing with him those kind of things, and I just, I wasn't thinking, I guess, I go, so is, because we're supposed to be there for three weeks, I go, So is the training canceled or like, what are we doing? (laughs) And I mean, the whole office erupts in laughter and he goes, Hey Bill, I got you on speaker here. And I'm like, that's that's perfect. You know? (laughs) So it was wild. Um, uh, just again, just navigating that entire thing was surreal and still surreal when I think back on it. Um, that, that I was a, that I was a part of it. And my three kids, my goodness. I mean, when they would talk about it in school, and it would be brought up, I have three pretty shy children, and so I'm like, "Did you tell your teacher that Daddy was in the building?" Like, they don't care about that. I'm like, "I promise you, they do. Why don't you tell them that?" And they they didn't. They don't care. They mm. they don't share that stuff. It's insane.
2: So you know, I mean, Morgan Stanley, you guys got really really lucky. I mean, those other you know firms in the building, the like Kenneth Fitzgerald, lost over 600 people. I mean, that's right. you got real uh, lucky.
3: I think and you may know more about it than I do. I think Morgan Stanley was his largest tenant. And maybe in that maybe he was just in the South Tower, but there was a ton of Morgan Stanley employees, and most, most, most got out.
2: Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. So you are now a pastor. Yes. How did you decide to turn to a life of religious service?
3: You know, it's always been it's always kind of been there, like most call stories from ministers. That's always kind of been tugging at me. Um and I was active in my youth group when I was a kid. I I, I went to First Christian in Jinx. um, And so I was real active in area and district youth things. And uh, I I was at First Christian in Fayetteville and and I was a part of a a team to hire our new minister there. And that kind of got the juices flowing. I went through a really intense Bible study also. And I thought, man, I may want to do this. And I, I had transitioned over to the banking world at that time. And the the seminary that I was toying with going to is actually based in Tulsa here, like Phillips, and they work around you know they they work around distance learning basically, and so I was able to you know have a job in Arkansas and still drive in one day a week for for classes, and it just kind of it just kind of naturally formed. And I really when I enrolled in seminary, I actually didn't enroll to be a pastor. I just kind of wanted to learn more things, and that then it became you know yeah this is what I'm this is what I'm called to do.
2: Nice. So, as we begin to wind down this interview, what be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Oh, Forest Park Christian Church is my um, is
3: my church. Um, it's uh, force Park Christian Church Tulsa dot org. Um, and so we we would love to we'd love to we'd love to see you. We've got we've got online worship services uh, that you can plug into. But also, I mean, there's there's buttons there to contact me. I'd love to be in conversation with with anyone not just about 9/11 about whatever you want to talk about we can we can do that um, I it's a really progressive church in in the Bible belt right in a in a in a very in a very red state and so it's interesting to navigate um, kind of our brand of Christianity in a in a place where conservative rules today and and we're certainly not that as a uh, as a church
2: hmm. so I am my interviews with my favorite question and the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of Earth? I mean, it sounds so cheesy,
3: but I am so sick to death of the division, not just in our country, but just worldwide. And I, I would love for love to rule the day. Uh, I think that's what Jesus stood for when you boil every single thing down. If it doesn't line up with love, it doesn't line up with the divine, the holy, whatever you want to call it. So I would love for people to turn to some sort of tangible, you know, love based uh, ideologies, because I think that's what is severely lacking connection with other humans and love. Hmm. And again, it's, it's a real cheesy thing to say, but that's that's what I'd like to say.
2: Fair enough. Bill, I know this has been a tough subject, but thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. This has been really great.
3: Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate
2: it, truly. You're welcome. And just like that, Deval Nation, we come to the end of episode 82. I want to thank Bill again for taking the time to come on the show and speak with me. What an incredible tale. I am thankful we all got to hear it. Bill is a super nice guy, and I want to thank Katie Kinder for putting the two of us together. As I mentioned in the last episode, I am currently... In Europe on vacation, so you are getting lots of pre recorded content to make up for my absence. I know, ah. I'll return in two weeks, rested and ready to get close to that ever looming 100th episode milestone. Have you had a chance to check out our store on TeePublic? We have everything from magnets, stickers, and mugs, plus we have a carefully curated collection of t shirts put together by myself and Mrs. Duvall. Be sure to go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com. Look on the banner on the left that says merch. Click that and you'll be taken to our store on TeePublic. And we want to thank TeePublic for being such great partners. September is Suicide Prevention Month. As someone who has struggled with mental health in the past, I encourage everyone who might be going through a significant mental health crisis to reach out to a family member, friend, trusted doctor, or religious leader, and have them help you get the immediate attention and help you require. You can also contact the 988-SUICIDE-AND-CRISIS hotline. But please remember that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. On behalf of the entire team here at The Derek Duval Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, you matter and you count. Nos da, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth.
1: This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com to explore past episodes and find links to purchase merchandise. Please subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Derek Duval Show.